The other side of the news is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from the other side of midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus to bring comforting calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary based on well-verified references fed through vigilance and discernment. Our desire, desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. And welcome to the other side of the news. This evening's show is titled Snapshot, and we quite literally do snapshot. This week, our scheduled guest at the last minute had a family emergency, and so we've had to reschedule, which left us with a choice of either doing a replay of a previous show or doing what we're going to show you tonight, which is we're going to share with you some of the sources that we have tapped into this week where we get some information and the resources. And we thought that this would be very interesting for you. Everyone has contributed. My name's Anetta and I have been the one who got elected for the uh, position of telling you this, but Timothy and Cynthia are working diligently behind the scenes here. So what we've got this evening are a few clips and some information for you directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And we think you'll enjoy it. It's everything from about the global tyranny to I have a poem. There are some really wonderful interviews. So we hope that you enjoy this a little format change. And we'll be back with you next week uh, where we have a really fabulous guest, Dr. Joseph Farrell, scheduled. So we're looking forward to that. And without further ado, we'll move into the first item. So. This is a poem, and it's, it's read by and written by Mark Atwood, and the poem is titled, We See You. It's a very powerful poem uh, about the situation that's going on on the planet, and in my items, in Annetta's items, there will be also a transcript of this poem, so if you'd like to share it, and also the link to the original video, uh, we will be playing the sound file. We see you. The scales have fallen from our eyes. The veil has drifted down from the sky. Meandering firmly, finally revealing your depth of depravity. That's fear you're now feeling. We see you. Your demonic bloodlust laid bare to see the statue of filth on the BBC. The prince and the madam, the crisper spy. The islands of horrors in the ocean lie. We see you. A billion souls stolen over the years. 
You hid them deep down to drown their tears. Perfect and innocent, God's own creations. Mutilated by your sick machinations. We see you. Vlad the Impaler and his vile descendants. Fleeing the palace from the 5D ascendants. The virus distracted but gave us the time to peel back the layers of your heinous crimes. We see you. Run, run as fast as you can. Back for more orders from the Phoenician clan. Out of white rabbits, the looking glass cracked. Tipping point reached, odds against you now stacked. We see you. Pizza and hot dogs, pasta and sauce. Your sickness decoded your lack of remorse. Our slumber is over, our eyes not wide shut. For the children of Haiti, a knife to your gut. We see you. Ascension is powered by the light of the flare. Scramble like rats to the ruins of your lairs. It's over, it's over. Save our children, we cry. Revealed, reviled. It's your soul's time to die. We see you. In this interview, Dr. Philip McMillan interviews the Belgian Dr. Gert Vanden Bosch. And it's a fascinating interview. Dr. Gert Vanden Bosch is an internationally recognized vaccine developer, having worked for the head of the Vaccine Development Office at the German Center for Infection Research. Um, he has a, quite an impressive resume, but he has he has been on the inside developing vaccines, and he has issued a very dire warning about these vaccines. I think that you'll find his perspective coming from inside the industry quite interesting. This interview is then also followed up with Del Bigtree uh, giving an interpretation of everything that he's saying, and he does an excellent job of explaining all the science behind this. It is a fascinating interview. I'm sure that you will enjoy it very much. Something gigantic has happened this week, at least I think it is, and you can decide for yourself as we weigh into this. To begin with, there is a world-renowned vaccine creator that went on his LinkedIn and put out a letter to every single professional in the world, essentially telling them we must stop the vaccination program immediately. Here's just a couple of excerpts from his letter. Let's take a look at this. As a dedicated virologist and vaccine expert, I only make an exception when health authorities allow vaccines to be administered in ways that threaten public health, most certainly when scientific evidence is being ignored. The present extremely critical situation forces me to spread this emergency call. As the unprecedented extent of human intervention in the COVID-19 pandemic is now at risk of resulting in a global catastrophe without equal, this call cannot sound loudly enough. 
He goes on, sufficient scientific evidence has been brought to the table. Unfortunately, it remains untouched by those who have the power to act. How long can one ignore the problem when there is at present massive evidence that viral immune escape is now threatening humanity? We can hardly say we didn't know or were not warned. In this agonizing letter, I put all of my reputation and credibility at stake. I expect from you, guardians of mankind, at least the same. It is of utmost urgency. Do open the debate. By all means, turn the tide. I think he goes on and has this statement to make um, a form of a disclaimer, I suppose. For those who may have some difficulty in understanding how mass vaccination drives viral immune escape, it will suffice to watch infectivity and morbidity rates in those countries who have now succeeded in vaccinating millions of people in just a few weeks, e.g. UK, Israel, USA. Whereas these countries are now enjoying declining infectivity rates, they will undoubtedly start to suffer from a steep incline in COVID-19 cases in the weeks to come. The steep decline we're seeing right now may be followed by a short-lived plateau, but a subsequent steep incline of severe disease cases is inevitable. These are shocking statements. And to be clear, just so you recognize, this man could not be more pro-vaccine. In fact, he may be one of the most highly ranked and talented vaccine creators in the world. Let's take a look at the resume of the man that is screaming at the top of the mountain right now. This is Geert van den Bosch, PhD. He was at GSK Biologicals. He was a senior project leader of adolescent vaccine projects, new biotech vaccine development and QCQA manager, head of adjuvant technologies and alternative deliveries and R&D. At Novartis Vaccines and Diagnostics, he was the director, research program leader and head of adjuvant. At Solve Biologicals, global project director of the influenza vaccine. For the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, he was the Senior Program Officer, Global Health Vaccine Discovery. For Global Alliance for Vaccine and Immunization, which we refer to as GAVI, he was the Program Manager. And at UNIVAC, he was the Chief Innovation and Scientific Officer. He's also at the German Center for Infectious Research, Head of the Vaccine Development Office. And at Verico, he is, uh, was the Managing Director. Okay, this guy is anything but an anti-vaxxer. He is as pro-vaccine as you can get, yet there is something that has got him terrified. Now, that letter really only speaks to the professionals in his field. But luckily for us, he did an interview, I believe it was last week, and normally, you know, we would love to bring Geert on, but I think this interview is so perfect that I'm going to do something we rarely do here on the high wire. We're going to go through the interview as it appeared. So I want to make sure that you recognize that all the credit needs to go to the doctor that created this YouTube video and does this interview. But let us walk through what I believe may prove to be the most important interview in the history of mankind. Let's get started. Here's how the video starts out. I have the pleasure of having with me uh, Gert van den Bosch from uh, Belgium. 
The difference is that Gert is truly an international vaccine developer, and he is here to share some very important and unique perspectives on where we are now in terms of the COVID pandemic. So, pleasure to have you here with me, Gert. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for uh, having me, Philip. Wonderful, wonderful. Listen, I mean, I think the first thing that we have to clarify is that we have to explain you are someone who is in the vaccine development um, business, so to speak. Uh, What has that background been like? Well, I have a background uh, essentially in as far as the vaccines are concerned in uh, industry as well as in the non-for-profit sector. So I have been working with the Dominion Gates Foundation, Gavi, especially concentrating on uh, vaccines for global health. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've also been working with several different uh, companies, vaccine companies, uh, developing, uh, of course, um, uh, essentially prophylactic vaccines. And my uh, main focus of interest has always been, in fact, the design of vaccines. Uh, so the, the concept, how can we educate the immune system in ways that are, to some extent, more efficient than uh, we do right now with our conventional vaccines. Right. And so, in effect, this is the area of work you've been in. You develop vaccines. You are as well working with the Ebola vaccine um, as well, one of the really, really dangerous viruses we have out there in the world. Uh, how, how does that work? Is, it, is that easy to do? Well, I was not, uh, let, let me be very clear, I was a coordinator of the Ebola program at uh, Gavi. So we were interacting with several different vaccine companies that were developing uh, Ebola vaccines because it was important for Gavi uh, to make the right choice, the right vaccine, in order uh, you know, for this vaccine to be rolled out in the uh, Western African uh, countries that had this severe uh, Ebola crisis uh, back uh, a number of years ago. So that was not, uh, let's say, operational practical work. It was more a role of uh, coordination, but of course was also a role of assessing what would be the impact of using some of these vaccines in larger populations and in an area where uh, an epidemic is, is really is, is going on because that's a very particular and peculiar situation. All right, so obviously he starts out by, you know, getting into the credentials of Geert van den Bosch here. And I think there's a couple of things that I found striking right away. What he says is really his specialty is on the design of vaccines. He understands the design of all the vaccines being made in the world. He's worked for Gavi, and in that case, he oversaw the Ebola vaccine program. And his area of specialty is understanding the effect of using vaccines and choosing the specific vaccines and its impact in mass vaccination programs, okay? Have we established that if some guy is gonna have an issue with a mass vaccination campaign, this is the guy we all thought was supposed to be in charge, right? But for some reason, he's not. Let's hear what he goes on to say. If we, we have 2020 vision at the moment when we look back at the pandemic, and where we started from. And I've always said that at the time when the pandemic started, when it got from China into Italy, into Europe, into the UK, I thought that the only way that we could manage this is to lock down and to prevent the spread of this apparent, this very dangerous virus. 
we do have to stand back and see whether or not those decisions were correct. But as we said, that hindsight is 2020. What would you say now, as we look back at the decisions we made then? Were we about on the right track? Did we make any mistakes? Well, frankly speaking, from the very beginning, and I mean, there is uh, many people who can uh, witness this or testify this. I always said that it was a bad idea to do lockdowns that uh, would also affect the younger people, that we would prevent younger people from having contact, from being exposed. Because remember, the big difference back then was, of course, that we had uh, a viral strain, COVID strain, that was circulating, dominant strain, and that was not highly infectious as those that we are seeing right now. Of course, when a new virus gets into a population, it immediately gets to the folks that have, you know, weak immunity. And we know, we know these people. This is to a large majority, of course, elderly people, people uh, that have underlying diseases or are otherwise uh, immune suppressed, etc. And um, of course, I mean, it was certainly the right thing to do to protect these people and uh, for them also to uh, isolate. But we have to distinguish, frankly, and that is what we we have not been doing, between those people that have strong innate immunity. I mean, it's not, uh, you cannot see, when you see a person, you don't know this, but we know that young people have quite decent innate immune response, and uh, therefore they are naturally protected and even more, I mean, if they get in contact with coronavirus, it will boost their natural immunity. So therefore, from the very beginning, I don't, I, I, I was, I disapproved, uh, you know, the fact that schools uh, got closed and, and universities and that uh, youngsters were preventing even from having contact with each other. That situation is, of course, completely different if you look at vulnerable people. The virus comes in the population. There is no, no humoral um, immunity. There is no immunity at all, in fact. So nobody has been in contact. So the youngsters, they can rely on good innate immunity. Elderly people, I mean, the, the innate immunity is waning. It gets increasingly replaced by antigen-specific, by specific immunity as uh, people get older. So these people very, very clearly uh, needed to be protected. But uh, it has taken a lot of time before we understood, in fact, what, how, we, how exactly the immune response and the virus were interacting. So there has been a lot of confusion, a lot of mistakes made. Well, mistakes, I mean, retrospectively. Um, yeah. and, and that has also led to, um, you know, bad control right from the beginning, uh, I would say. All right, so I think there's some important points we made here. And by the way, if you're watching the High Wire for the first time, as it turns out, we actually geek out on the science. If you're a person that's saying, I wonder what's going on here, but what you want is a bumper sticker slogan um, about uh, to make you feel better, then go watch some other network. What we're going to get into and where he's about to go is so deep and profound and powerful that you're going to have to actually care about science. What we're going to get into is the science here with Geert. But let's be specific about what he's pointing out. When there is any time there's a pandemic, when there's a virus that starts spreading, the first people that 
really we see it affect are those that don't have waning immune systems, the elderly, those that are sick. It's exactly what we saw over the age of 65 with other comorbidities. And we talked about the Great Barrington Declaration. There's now over 50,000 scientists and experts and doctors that have all said exactly what Geert is saying here. He is saying that there's the, there's the actual, those are the new numbers. There we go. So we're over 50,000, over 750,000 concerned citizens. If you haven't signed the Great Barrington Declaration, you better check it out online and get your signature in there because these things matter. But what he's telling us is that we should have protected that, you know, extremely vulnerable population, something the high wire has supported from day one. It's what we've been saying. But he, what also the high wire has been saying is those that are young, that are healthy, they need to get out and they need to go catch this illness. And as he pointed out, they're only going to just enhance their immune system. It's going to be made even stronger. He gets into a detail I hadn't really thought about and didn't really fully understand that once you get older, once you become, you know, when you're in those, the later years of your life, you no longer have humoral immunity or otherwise known as your innate immune system, which is sort of this initial sort of general immune system that just attacks and kicks butt, you're stuck with antigen immunity, meaning the things that you've caught through your life, the memory is going to be looking for those things, but it doesn't have the ability to take on a brand new virus or some variant we haven't seen. But our children, they've got that in spades. And college students and healthy people, it's just rocking. We've just got, you know, Mike Tyson's in there ready to go and take out any brand new virus. So we should have been out in the population dealing with it while the elderly that don't have that innate immune system that we do, they should have been secured. Exactly what the Great Barrington Declaration has been discussing. And obviously, scientists and virologists agree around the world. All right, now let's start getting into more details. Here we go. There's still a rise in cases. Countries have to try and lock down mask mandates and so on. But we all have the hope that vaccines would come and break the cycle. This is where clearly now, from your expertise, you seem to have a different thought about how we should have been thinking about vaccines then and even now. What, what is your perspective? Well, my perspective was and still is that um, if, you, if you go to war, you better make sure that you have the right weapon. And the weapon in itself can be an excellent weapon. And that is what I'm saying, really, about the current vaccines. I mean, it's just brilliant people who have been making these vaccines in no time and with regulatory approval and everything. So the weapon in itself is excellent. Question is, is this the right weapon for the kind of war that is going on right now? And there my answer is definitely no. Because these are prophylactic vaccines, and prophylactic vaccines uh, should typically not be administered to people who are exposed to high infectious pressure. So don't forget we are administering these vaccines in the heat of a pandemic. So in other words, um, while we are preparing our weapon, we are fully attacked by the virus. The virus is everywhere. So that is a very different scenario from using such vaccines in, in a setting where the vaccinee is barely or not exposed to the virus. And I'm saying this because if you have a high infectious pressure, it's so easy for the virus to jump from one person to the other. So if your immune response, however, 
is just mounting, as we see right now with a number of people who get their first dose. They get their first dose, the antibodies are not fully mature, or titers are maybe not uh, very high, so their immune response is suboptimal. But they are in the midst of this war. While they are mounting an immune response, they are fully attacked by, uh, by the virus. And every single time, I mean, this is textbook knowledge, every single time you have uh, an immune response that is suboptimal, in the presence of an infection, in the presence of a virus that infects that person, you are at risk for immune escape. So that means that the virus can escape to the immune response. And that is why I'm saying that these vaccines, I mean, in their own right, are of course excellent. But to use them in the midst of, in the midst of a pandemic and do mass vaccination, uh, because then you provide within a very short period of time the, the population with high antibody titers, so the virus comes under enormous pressure. I mean, that, that wouldn't matter if you can eradicate the virus, if you can prevent infection. But these vaccines don't prevent infection. They protect against disease. Because we are just, unfortunately, we look no further than the end of our nose. In the sense that hospitalization, that's all what counts, you know, getting people away from the hospital. But in the meantime, we are not realizing that we give all the time during this pandemic, by our interventions, the opportunity to escape to the immune, to the immune system. And, and, and that is, of course, uh, a very, very, very dangerous thing, especially if we realize that these guys, they only need 10 hours to replicate. So if we think that by making new vaccines and new, new vaccine against the, the, the new infectious strains, we are going to catch up. It's impossible to catch up. I mean, the virus is not going to wait till we have those vaccines ready. I mean, this thing continues. And as I was saying, the thing is, I mean, if, if you do this in the midst of a pandemic, that is, that is an enormous problem. These vaccines are, are excellent but they are not made for administration to millions of people in the midst, in the heat of a pandemic. I hope that all of you will go back when we, you know, get done with this and go back and watch just that section. There's so much to get out of that. But let's make it clear. Uh, one of the kings of vaccines, one of the greatest vaccine developers and overseer of most of our programs around the world, the important ones, is telling you, as someone that describes, I, you know, I study how the vaccine works, um, and he tells you this vaccine is not designed to stop infection. Personally, I think the discussion may be over there. So when Fauci says we're waiting for data to come in, I've been thinking, you know, I think the data would have been here by now. This guy is telling you, Geert says, I know for a fact, I've been in all these laboratories. He knows what this is. He's been around over the last 20 years of studying mRNA vaccines and viral vector vaccines. This guy has been in all those laboratories, in fact, running most of them. So when he tells you this vaccine is not designed to stop the infection and therefore transmission, I would take him for his word. And so what he's saying, and look, he's doing his job. He believes in vaccines. He's telling you this is an excellent, this is an excellent product. I would challenge him on that, but it doesn't matter. He's saying this is an excellent project, uh, product. But it's the wrong weapon. It's the wrong weapon for the war we're in. A prophylactic vaccine cannot be used once you're, the war is upon you, once you're already under assault. 
He talks about something we have already talked with you a lot about. We are very concerned about people that get that first shot, and then we see the news reports that after their first shot, they got the natural infection. That is the worst case scenario for some reasons we haven't even talked about. We brought up antibody-dependent enhancement, that somehow that could backfire on you and make the virus more deadly. But what he's saying is you are create, you know, you're creating um, a, a worst-case scenario where you're mounting what he calls a suboptimal response. It's not the optimal response by the vaccine. Your body's trying to create the antibodies, and it's only gotten started after the first shot or right when you get the second shot, and already you're under attack. And so the virus is going to win. And I, when I was thinking about him describing it, it reminded me of a self-defense class that I was in at one point where uh, the teacher was talking about, you know, look, if you have a safe under your bed that has a handgun, you probably shouldn't have, you know, um, the magazine and the handgun all together, I guess, in case your kids get in there, whatever. He said, so you're going to have a handgun and, you know, a safe. You want to open it. Then you'll have you put the magazine in your gun and then you're ready to handle it. So, so let's be clear. This is a perfect weapon and a perfect scenario should your dog start barking and you hear that someone's outside your house and you're worried that somebody might be casing your house. You open up your safe, you grab your gun, you pop in your magazine, you're ready to go to defend your house. But let's be clear, if you wake up in your bedroom and you see across the room there's an assailant standing there, by the time you reach over and try and get into your safe, get your magazine and gun, that assailant is on you and now you are in trouble. You will not, that gun will be useless to you. And I think about what Geert's saying, that's what he's telling you. This would have been great if the virus was coming sometime and you had time to prepare for it and they still got to get through your front door. It's already attacking you. At that point, the gun is no longer the appropriate weapon. In this case, natural immunity would be. In this case, hand-to-hand -hand combat. They're charging at your bed. You're just sat up in bed. You've got to jump up and handle that person with your hands as best you can. That's your best-case scenario doesn't matter that you have a perfectly designed weapon that could do something. It can't do it under this scenario. It will be just developing. You'll just be loading this gun. You'll just be developing antibodies, and you will be caught by surprise. And that is the worst-case scenario. And now we're teaching the virus how to get around this vaccine. It's now learning because it's not a full-mounted defense. And now it's understanding how the vaccine is working, and it's going to start creating other problems, which he's going to get deeper into. And then when we think about those people like, well, I mean, you know, uh, it, it, you know it stops the variance or the, the whole discussion, he says something that I found so shocking. He says, you must understand, this virus mutates within 10 hours. So if somebody's having a suboptimal response, it is going to mutate around that suboptimal response and become stronger and more powerful within 10 hours. And so he's saying, we're trying to catch up with that. We're going to in this race. We're going to, what are we going to keep making vaccines for all the variants as they appear? Or as Eugenio very well put out, if you're making a third shot, doesn't that mean you're not trusting the two shots is going to work? You're darn right. This guy's telling you they're not going to work. But it's not going to be a third shot or a fourth shot. This tweet came to mind. Look at this tweet. This is this guy. Figure below shows thousands of COVID mutations so far. Each point denotes a mutation. Now stop panicking every time you hear of a new mutation with a country or city brand name. Look at all of those dots, folks. This is the reality. Thousands. This thing mutates like crazy. We have thousands. Are we going to take that many vaccines to handle all the variants? This is the wrong weapon for the wrong war. It couldn't be better said, but he's going to get into some 
really, really stark details. Take a look at this. You mentioned this in your paper. It is equivalent to using either a partial dose of antibiotics in an antimicrobial or in a bacterial infection where you then produce superbugs. Is this the kind of example that you're alluding to? Well, that is a very good parallel. It's also the parallel I'm using actually in the paper we just posted on LinkedIn, which, you know, should be so open for everybody. Uh, I mean, it's pure science. Because uh, as you were pointing out, uh, Philip, the thing is, the rule is, it's very simple. I mean, same with antibiotics. Either the antibiotics do not match very well with the bug, that's not good, that's why we are making antibiograms, you know, to first identify which, which is this germ, and then we choose the antibiotics. We, we need to have a very good match, otherwise there could be resistance. So when I compare this to the current situation, do we have a good match with our antibodies? No, at this point in time, we don't have a good match anymore because we have this kind of like almost heterologous variants so that differs from the original strain. So the match isn't very good anymore. And hence we see people are still protected, but they are already shedding the virus. So that is one thing. The other thing is the quantity, of course. You tell people, you know, you take your antibiotics according to the prescription. Please don't, uh, as soon as you feel well, that doesn't mean that, that you, you can stop the antibiotics. Same here. And I give just one example. If you now give people just like one dose, I mean, they are in the process of mounting their antibodies. The antibodies still need to fully mature, etc. So this is a suboptimal situation. We are putting them in a suboptimal situation with regard to their um, immune protection. And on the other hand, they are in the midst of the war. They are fully attacked by all, you know, by all these kinds of uh, highly infectious variants. So, I mean... It's, it's very clear that this is driving immune escape and will ultimately drive resistance uh, to, to the vaccines. So my point is, yes, Flip, it's very similar. There is one difference. The virus needs living cells. I mean, if you're driving immune escape, but the guy has no chance to jump on somebody else, who cares? Mm -hmm. The situation is now different because we are in the midst of a war we, there is a high infectious pressure. So the likelihood that a, an immune escape immediately finds another living cell, that means another host, is very, very high. It's per definition. It's the definition almost of a pandemic. I mean, he says what I've been saying. You know, we may look back and say, Louis Pasteur in antibiotics. I, I used to say, you know, vaccines aren't the greatest invention of the 20th century. Antibiotics are. But now we're looking at the end of the antibiotic age. And if it turns out we only made it like 100 years, we we're able to stop infection. But by giving antibiotics, we were teaching bacteria how to get smarter and more powerful. And now they're getting around the antibiotics. We've all seen this, right? The overuse of it in cattle, the overprescription in people. So many scientists and doctors are panicked about it. And most pharmaceutical companies have stopped making all antibiotics because they're saying that the bacteria are mutating so fast now that any product they go into development on, by the time they get it out in the market, the bacteria is already figuring its way around it. Well, how do you avoid that? You got to kill it dead. You got to win the battle. If you got the right weapon, it's got to kill it dead immediately. But what he's saying, just like not taking all of your prescription, all of that antibiotics, which I never really understood that. Why do I got to keep taking it? I'm feeling better. Now I recognize because you don't want your body to turn into a mutation factory that is going to turn this 
what was just a you know benign bacteria or just mildly infectious into a deadly killer like we now see SIRS, uh, um, um, MRSA, and uh, CRS and these different things that are killing hundreds of thousands of people in our hospitals now all the time. This vaccine could do that because it's having a suboptimal response, just like you know uh, an unmatched antibiotic. And what he's saying, if the vaccine is matched up directly with this virus and you've gotten both your shots, you've mounted defense, it'll do a good job at beating it. But most of you aren't going to have gotten to the full effect of the vaccine by the time you're already under attack. And so therefore, you're going to have this suboptimal response. And now you are going to be responsible for turning this 0.4% death rate virus, which is a nothing burger essentially, except for those in a really high risk category. Now you're going to start raising the risk for everybody and turning it into a deadly killer. Let's get deeper into it. It raises a simple question that somebody has put in, in front of us here, which is, it's perfectly common sense. What do we do? This question is very easy. I mean, we need, we need to, to do a better job when we are confronted with situations that seem very dramatic, like, you know, an epidemic. Our generation uh, has not, you know, been living in times where there are uh, epidemics or pandemics. And so we immediately take action and, and jump on the beast with the tools we have instead of analyzing what is really going on. And one thing that uh, I thought was extremely interesting was, and it's something that was not really understood, we know that a number of people are asymptomatically infected. So they are infected, but they don't develop severe symptoms. Of course, they can have some mild symptoms, upper respiratory disease, whatever. So the question is, what exactly happens with those folks that they can eliminate the virus? They eliminate the virus. They, they, they will transmit it. They will, they will shed it for like a week or so. And then they eliminate this. And you could say, yeah, of course we know that antibodies eliminate. Oh, wait a minute. The antibodies come later. You have first this search of, you know, shedding of the virus. And it's only afterwards that you see you know, a moderate and short-lived rate of antibodies. So the antibodies cannot be responsible for elimination of the virus. So what is responsible for elimination of the virus? Mm. Luckily enough, we have a number of brilliant scientists, independent brilliant scientists that have now increasingly been showing, and there is increasing evidence, that what in fact is happening is that NK cells are taking care of the virus. So, so, so NK cells, the, the virus gets into, into these epithelial cells and starts to replicate, but NK cells get activated and they will kill, they will kill the cell, you know, in which the, the, the virus tries to, to replicate. So I'm saying that the virus needs to rely on a living cell. So you kill that cell, it's gone, it's all over. So, so why we have this solution? We have this solution in, in the pathogenesis because some people eliminate it. Absolutely. Right? All right, so this is really 
it, it's amazing because what he's talking about is something that we've been discussing. One of the things that we keep hearing is the vaccine creates more antibodies than the natural infection does. Therefore, this is the first vaccine ever that's better than natural infection. It's simply not true because of what he's describing to you here. The innate immune system you have has got something that that vaccine is not doing. That vaccine is making antibodies, which he says is the after effect. That's the last part. Like that's the cleanup crew. The real butt kickers, the first line of defense is already in your natural immune system. It's called NK cells, natural killer cells. Now, what these are essentially, and there's a lot of science now looking at this, are these sort of cells that float around. We, we now believe it's about 10% of your white blood cells. They're these lymphocytes, and they're always monitoring your blood. They're bumping against all the other cells and making sure, oh, yeah, that's a healthy cell, just checking it out. They're just walking around. They're like armed guards, making sure that everything's okay. But as soon as a cell is infected with cancer or with a virus, it knows it. And then it has this amazing ability to, you know, get in there and discover, you know, through the interaction with interferons. But it says, oh, wait a minute, this is an infected cell. So it goes in, grabs a hold of that cell and immediately puts out some like deadly goo that penetrates the cell and kills it dead. This is what has been happening for everybody that's not, not vaccinated that is out there. All of our children, our babies and our children have amazing natural killer cells. Young people, this is that humoral immunity that the elderly no longer have. This is your innate immune system. It's running and coursing through every vein in your body. So if you're terrified of this virus, just know you have this amazing natural killer, these power warriors. They're going to go in and just kill the cells dead. Only after that, then, does your body now get into an antibody production space to just finally clean up the last little bit. But science thinks antibodies were the greatest part of this. They're dead wrong. That is the weakest part of the immune response, especially to this coronavirus. They are not inspiring your NK cells. They're coming in for the after effects saying, see, we got more of the cleanup crew than you did. I don't want a bunch of maids and plumbers. I want the warriors fighting for me. But this vaccine doesn't do that. And now it starts getting really, really scary. Get ready. I hope you're ready for this. But if you're like me, you must be sitting there right now and saying, oh, my God, it's now all starting to make some sense. By the end of the show, I am telling you, you are going to be ready to have a conversation you've never been able to have. You are going to be able to say, I now know what happened in this pandemic, and I know what we're going to do if we keep vaccinating. Get ready. Strap yourself in. This ride is about to get really rough. Here we go. It raises the point that I've always been saying is that we haven't spent enough time understanding how the virus impacts the body and understanding how the pandemic then will impact the world. We've spent all of our time just going for solutions. Has that been a mistake? Of course, this has been the, you know, the, the, most, uh, the most important mistake, I think. Uh, I'm not sure many people, and I, I was part of them. I was just explaining, we don't understand our weapon because we don't understand that prophylactic vaccines should not be used in the midst of an epidemic. And we don't understand exactly what the virus is doing. So we go to a war and we don't know our enemy. We don't understand the strategy of our enemy. And we don't know how our weapon works. I mean, how is, how is that going to go? Uh, so so that is a fundamental problem to begin with. 
I, I, I understand and I, I completely accept that. But at the same time, I am still thinking that if the governments don't respond in some way, because they have to be seen to be doing something, um, what they seem to be in a lose-lose situation. If they don't do anything, they're going to be criticized. And if they do do something, they're going to be criticized. Is that a fair statement to make? I don't think so. What was this out of, uh, what's the name of the guy, Hippocrates? Mm-hmm. You know the first, The first do no harm. Okay. I mean, it wouldn't matter if you, if you start uh, vaccinating people and even it doesn't work. Problem is that we induce a long-lived antibody response. And as a matter of fact, we know, I mean, that is not my knowledge, it's all published. Problem is that we, we fail to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Fact is that these long-lived antibodies, which have high specificity, of course, for the, for the, for the virus, they outcompete our natural antibodies. Because their natural antibodies, they have a very broad spectrum, but they have low affinity, right? And so by doing this, even if your antibodies don't work anymore because there is resistance or, you know, the, the strains are uh, too different from the original strain, we still, this antibody, specific antibody, will still continue to outcompete your natural antibodies. And that is a huge problem because I was saying just a few minutes ago, these natural antibodies, they provide you with broad protection. This protection is, yes, it is variant non-specific. It doesn't matter what variant you get. It doesn't even matter what type of coronavirus is coming in. They will protect you. Unless, of course, you suppress this level of innate immunity or it is, for example, outcompeted by uh, long-lived uh, specific antibodies. And so it's not like, okay, you know, you, you, you missed it. Uh, okay, let's try again. No, you did some harm. I mean... This is different from drugs. Immunizing somebody is installing a new software on your computer. Don't forget, I mean, these antibodies, they will be recalled every single time you're encountering a coronavirus, right? I mean, you, you cannot just erase this. So this is very serious. This is not like a drug. This is very serious. This is, he uses the term long-lived antibodies. I want to, I'm going to use sort of a football uh, way to describe. Now, I think this video is pretty clear, but I really want to make sure that we all get this because I actually learned something this week that I wasn't fully aware of, and now it is crystal clear. But let me see if I can help make it clear, crystal clear for anybody that's sort of thinking about what he said. Now, here's what he is describing. And, and this is sort of, if you ever, you know, played any sports, soccer, football, hopefully this makes some sense to you. But on our team, on our, in our immune system, we have what are called nonspecific antibodies. They have, he called it broad spectrum. It's broad spectrum, um, low affinity. They don't care who is coming across. In this case, let's look at the other team. These are, let's say these are all variants of coronavirus. We've got the A variant, F, T, R, L, Y, X. Okay. Now, it doesn't matter who gets the ball in this case. When we have nonspecific, anyone that comes across. So let's say X gets the ball, running back gets the ball, comes running over here, boom, right here, nonspecific antibodies, boom, tackle, dead, not going anywhere. But let's say it's a different play. Let's say they decide they, you know, we're going to run Y. So they run Y with a roundabout coming through here, boom, it doesn't matter. Nonspecific, we see the Y too. 
It doesn't matter. We're going to go after anything because it's nonspecific. It's brilliant. These are brilliant antibodies you have as your natural immune system. What if it's a trick play? What if they toss it to A and over here tries to get through? doesn't matter. Bam, nonspecific is going to go after the A variant too. This is how your immune system works, and it's fantastic. Now let's talk about what happens when we're given a vaccine. All right, here we go. Go to the next one. So in this case, in this case, we're now going to move into vaccine-induced vaccine antibodies. As he said, they're long-lived. They don't go away. This isn't a drug that's going to wear off two days from now. We say, you know what? You had an allergic reaction. We're not going to do that drug anymore. It is in you forever. There's no getting this thing out. And what did it just do? It created what he called specific antibodies. Specific antibodies is now what we're going to discuss. So now in this scenario, scenario playing football, essentially, Everyone on the team has been told, you're looking for X. The antibody created, in this case, for the spike protein, the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 that we first saw at the very beginning before there's any variants, our vaccine is going to make you fight that really well. So how does it work? Well, it's great. The coach basically said, I know for a fact that X, the running back back there, is going to get the ball. So everyone on the team, T on X. Great. So X gets the ball. Boom, comes through. It doesn't matter, man. They're all going to jump in there. Yeah! Yay, the vaccine's awesome. It totally it stopped the virus. Okay? But now here is the problem he's talking about. This entire team can only respond to X. It only understands that it's a specific, it's an antibody specific to the virus it's looking for. So what happens if Y gets the ball? What if the team, they, they know, it doesn't matter if the coach said it was going to be X, it doesn't matter. Y gets the ball, Y comes around, boom, goes through here, can go anywhere they want. X does nothing. Boom, win, we're in the end zone. We just won. Virus wins the whole game. Because no one on the team was waiting for X, was planned for X. In fact, they were told, don't go near X. I mean, don't, 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 don't go near Y. Okay? All right. But here's something that I didn't understand. I understood that, and we've talked about that basically on the show, not in this way. But it goes one step further, and this is what I think. Oh, I actually did that wrong. Hold on one second. Boom. Bam. Here we go. All right. Here's what I did not understand about the immune system last week that I do now. When he says that the vaccine-induced antibodies are long-lived, it means they're going to be there forever. He also basically explains that they are more robust. The, the virus-specific antibodies, the specific ones, they're more robust, and they outcompete your nonspecific natural immune antibodies. So in this case, you do have some natural nonspecific antibodies in there that could handle any one of the variants. But the problem is these guys are bullies. They're bigger. They're stronger. They, they're more, you know, specific and they're ready to do their job. So if Y gets the ball and starts coming around, our nonspecific antibody is going to want to jump in there. Unfortunately, our vaccine-induced is going to push this out of the way and become a blocker to make sure that that antibody or that, that virus gets all the way in and wins and gets the touchdown and could possibly leave you dead. This vaccine is bullying away your remaining natural immune system. 
You do have these, but they're never going to work again. Do you realize how horrifying this is? Now think about the hundreds of millions of people that are lining up around the world, that are lined up outside of stadiums right now because CNN and Tony Fauci just said, I love this vaccine. Well, Geert here, one of the leading scientists in vaccine and immunology in the world is telling you, everybody getting the vaccine is destroying their innate immune system. Those immune antibodies that were nonspecific, that could have handled any of those thousands of variants we just saw you. They're designed for it by being vaccinated. You just assured yourself that there are no antibodies inside of you to fight the variants. So if we have strayed far enough away from the vaccine-induced variant that we were looking at, the original spike protein, everyone that is vaccinated is now in horrible, horrible trouble. They're going to be attacked by variants, and their bodies will not mount a defense. We are talking about carnage like we've never seen. He's going to get into more detail. Take a look at this. When I was looking at some of the research around the challenges that they faced with the initial SARS um, called the first epidemic, and they tried to develop the vaccines, one of the things they found, certainly when they tested it on the ferrets, was that when they exposed them, to a coronavirus again, they got a very severe response to it. Is this what you're saying, that we are putting ourselves in a position where we can then have much more severe disease, even to viruses that should normally be quite benign? Well, you know, Philip, you, you see all my passion and my conviction, but I mean, I've been the last to criticize the vaccines uh, in terms of would they in some regard, could they in some regard be unsafe because, you know, you would have even this exacerbation of disease uh, due to antibodies that doesn't match uh, very well with the uh, coronavirus they're exposed to, etc. I, I know there is, there is reports on this and there is a lot of, uh, you know, uh, serious thoughts about this, but um, I think what we are talking about right now, the really the, the, the epidemic or the pandemic problem of having a population that is at no point during the pandemic and to large extent due to our intervention has not a strong immune response. I mean, this is already serious enough. This is, this is more concerning than one or the other adverse event that could maybe elicit it. Uh, I'm not downplaying it, but that could maybe be elicited because people have antibodies that do no longer match very well with the uh, strain they were, uh, or with the strain they are exposed to. And therefore, you know, they build a complex, they don't neutralize the virus, they build a complex, and this complex could maybe even enhance viral entry into susceptible cells and hence lead to exacerbation of disease. I mean, this may be possible, but the problem I'm talking about is a global, a global problem. It's not an individual getting an adverse event. It's a global problem of, you know, making this virus increasingly infectious because we leave it all the time a chance and opportunity to escape in the immune system and to drive this to, to, to whip this up 
you know, up to a level where the virus is so infectious that we can even no longer control it. Because, I mean, these highly infectious strains, people, some people think, oh, the virus is going to calm down and it will insert a number of mutations, you know, just to be gentle and, and kind with us. That's not going to happen. I mean, this highly infectious strain remains. It, it is not going to be spontaneous mutations that all of a, of a, of a sudden uh, would become, you know, would, would make this virus again harmless because such a virus would have a competitive disadvantage, could, no, could not be dominant anymore. So that's not going to happen. So we're talking about a very, very, very serious problem here. This video in about 40 minutes manages to encapsulate what we have been shouting from the top of our lungs about on the high wire for over a year. He's covering so many of the issues we brought up. In this case, the interviewer asked us about what we've been talking about, antibody-dependent enhancement, immune enhancement, or also called pathogenic priming, where the underperformance of the vaccine actually works as a catalyst to make the virus more deadly when it comes in contact with the person. But what geared this thing is, I'm aware of that. And I recognize that there are a lot of scientists looking at that, which was news to me. Is that news to you? I mean, we are giving this vaccine. This has been the antibody-dependent enhancement has probably been the number one thing that we've been worried about here at the Informed Consent Action Network and on the high wire. We've been trying to warn everybody. He says, sure, that's a problem. And I know there's lots of scientists looking at it, which is, that's good to know. I don't know when they're going to do something about it. But he's saying, I'm talking about a much bigger problem than that. Yeah, that might get someone killed. That might be an adverse event for somebody that their body ends up, the vaccine actually works against them, their antibodies help the virus enter the cells and they die. But that would be one person. I'm not worried about that. He says, I am worried about a global event. What I'm talking about is a global issue. And the global issue is the fact that we are helping this virus gain function. We are turning it into a killer in every single body that is getting it because, you know, it is underperforming and it's not designed for the job. And this is how I now hear it. We all talked about, is this lab created? And these gain-of-function studies in laboratories where we take the virus and we put it in a pangolin, and then we put it in a bat, and then we put it in a snake, and then we put it into some human cells to see if we can gain function, meaning can we give it more deadly attributes? Well, now what this vaccine is doing is it's turning hundreds of millions of people around the world into a gigantic gain-of-function laboratory. And where I have told you before that in nature, viruses tend to mutate to become um, less deadly because if they kill their host, they don't move on. Then the evolution, they want to move on, so they stop killing their host. What he's saying is this isn't a natural pandemic. We have inserted ourselves here. We are now inserting a mechanism that we're teaching it to actually go the opposite direction. It's getting more deadly, and the way we're doing it, the other one will not compete. It's not going to move in the direction that a natural virus does because we're not acting naturally. We are putting immense pressure on it with an underperforming vaccine that is going to turn it into a Hulk. And his concern is that it will become so virulent and so deadly, there is nothing we can do to stop it. Now, listen to this. I've seen the question many times, and quite frankly, I get asked the questions. Um, we're coming to a point where people are going to have to take these vaccines. Well, that looks as though it's the reality, either in the context of work or in the context of travel. Based on what you're saying, they're in a, a lose-lose situation. 
what does what does this mean? Well, what does this mean is very clear. It's very clear what this is going to mean. So let's uh, consider the consequences of this, both at the population level and at an individual level. Because I would well understand if it, for the population it's maybe not the best thing to do, but you know, on an individual level, it's still okay. Yeah, then it's not an easy, that's not an easy question. But as a matter of fact, it's exactly the opposite. Well, it's not the opposite, it is detrimental, both on a population level as on an individual level. And I'm telling you why I think the population level, I explained to you, we are increasingly facing highly infectious strains that already right now we cannot control because basically what we are doing is that we are turning, when we vaccinate somebody, we are turning this person in a potential asymptomatic carrier that is shedding the virus. But at an individual level, I just told you that if you have these antibodies and at some point, and I'm sure this will, people can challenge me on this, but you know, reality will prove it. I think we are very close to vaccine resistance right now. And it's not for nothing that already people start developing, you know, new vaccines against the strains, et cetera. But what I was saying is that, okay, if you miss the shoot, okay, you could say nothing has happened. No, you are at the same time losing the most precious part of your immune system that you could ever imagine of. And that is your innate immune system because the innate antibodies, the natural antibodies, the secretory IgMs, will be outcompeted by these antigen-specific antibodies for binding to the virus. And that will be long-lived. That is a long-lived suppression, and you lose every protection against any viral variant or, or coronavirus variant, etc. So this means that you are left just with not, no single immune response, with your, your, you know, you, you, it's none. Your Im immunity has become nihil. It's, it's all done. The antibodies don't work anymore, and your, um, your innate immunity has been completely bypassed. And, and, this, and this, while highly infectious strains are circulating. So, I mean, if that isn't clear enough, I really don't get it. And people, please do read my, my, you know, what I posted because it's oh, yeah. science. It's pure science, pure science. And and as everybody knows, I'm a highly passionate vaccine guy, right? And and I have no criticism on the vaccines. But please use the right vaccine at the right place and don't use it in the heat of a pandemic on millions of millions of people. We are going to pay a huge price for this. And I'm becoming emotional because I'm thinking of my children of the younger generation i mean it's, it's just impossible what we are doing we don't understand the pandemic we have been we have been turning it in an artificial pandemic who can explain who can explain where all of a sudden all this highly infectious strain come from nobody can explain this i can explain it but we, we have not been seeing this during previous pandemics during natural pandemics, we have not been seeing it because at every single time there was the immunity was low enough so that the virus didn't need to escape. So back at the end of the pandemic, when things calmed down and it was herd immunity, it was still the same virus circulating. What we are now doing is that we are really chasing this virus and it becomes all, you know, increasingly, increasingly infectious. 
And I mean, this is just a, a situation that is completely, completely, uh, completely out of control. I, I don't, I really don't know what to say. As he said, I don't know what it's going to take to get people to listen. What he's telling us is he believes we are just moments away from reaching and creating a coronavirus that is just purely vaccine resistant. And that may be a problem for one person, but he's talking about the global problem. Because once this virus is vaccine resistant, that is the only thing that people have gotten the vaccine can protect themselves from. And now it no longer works. And when a man who has made vaccines his whole life, that has run most of our vaccine programs around the world, or many of them, when he tells you this vaccine is doing the worst thing of all, it is destroying your innate immune system. It's destroying your natural immune system that would not have any problem fighting variants, would be very good at it. But in this case, it has turned it, he says, nil. It doesn't exist anymore. Your immune system is all gone. It's all gone. Meanwhile, it is fighting a war with a now deadly pathogen that the vaccine forced to be deadly. Folks, this isn't, and by the way, have you noticed that nowhere in here as a scientist, think about who he is, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, all the people he's worked for, Gavi, you know, global outreach programs, vaccinations around the world. You have to know the moment he sits in this interview, the moment he posts that letter on LinkedIn, he recognizes I am about to destroy my legacy in vaccinations. He's trying to tell you I still believe in vaccinations, but this is the wrong tool. You must listen to me now. And he isn't, he's not couching any of this. He's not saying my theory is this, and if I'm right, so that he can back away someday and say, well, as it turned out, he doesn't tell you if the vaccine ends up stopping the infection and transmission, then some of the things that I'm worried about won't happen. He is telling you it has already happened. I am not hypothesizing in the future. I am telling you all of these variants that they are reporting on coming out of South Africa, coming out of Brazil, coming out of the UK. Guess why they're coming from there? Guess where our vaccine trials were from day one? We have been mutating this virus with this product. We have made a grave and dangerous error. And the question we've got to ask ourselves is what are we going to do about it? How serious is this guy? Does he recognize he's put it all on the line? He's almost getting tears in his eyes when he talks about his children and the world in the future. I mean, I, I saw this, I'm thinking it's like that science fiction movie, that scientist in the beginning of the science fiction movie. This is scary, scary stuff, and it is so important. But he's asked how important it is, and why would he risk everything based on who he is? This is how this video finishes up. Take a look at this. I see all these top scientists looking at these curves, at these waves, like uh, somebody else is looking at the uh, currency rates at the stock market. All they can say is, oh, it goes up, it's, it's stabilizing, it may go down, it may go up, etc. I mean, that is not science. They don't have any clue. They don't even know whether the curve is going to go up exponentially or whether it's going to go down or whatever. They're completely lost, and that is extremely scary. That has been the point where I said, okay, guys, you have, you have to analyze. You have to, but, you know, these people are not listening. That is the problem. So you are, in effect, 
putting your reputation on the line because you feel so passionately about this? Because I guarantee you that no government, uh, no, um, no health system is going to want to hear what you are saying. You're in effect um, almost giving fuel to the fire for an anti-vaxxer who doesn't oh, want no. the vaccine. No, no. Well, no, no not yet, but because I, I, I clearly also um, address uh, some emails from anti-vaxxers. I, I mean, I, I'm not interested, but I'm clearly uh, telling them that, um, you know, it, at this point, at this point it, it's so irrelevant, you know, whether you're a pro-vaxxer or an anti-vaxxer, it is about the science, it's about, it's about humanity, right? I mean... Let's, let's not lose our time now with, you know, criticizing people or, or you know, I mean, anti-vaxxer, okay, if you're not an anti-vaxxer, you could be a stalker, you could be, you know, we like to stigmatize, because if you stigmatize people, you don't need to bother about them anymore. Oh, this guy's an anti-vaxxer, okay, I mean, he's out of, of the scope. Oh, he's a stalker, he's out of the scope. I mean, yeah. that, that is a discussion that is completely irrelevant at this point. Yeah. It, it's yeah. about humanity. And of course I'm passionate. Of course, I mean, it's about, it's about your children. It's your family. It's my family. It's everyone, right? And it's simply for me, I put everything at stake because I've done my homework, right? And this is simply a moral obligation, a moral obligation. Oh, and at the end. All right. So look, folks, I think that, that we've been handed a tool. This interview is a tool to try and save the world. I think that all the science we've been looking at, I want to be clear, we have a scientific team that has people as smart as Geert on it. Uh, many of them don't appear on this show. This is what we've been trying to report to you. But now someone has gone, come forward, and they've laid it out so clearly for all of your friends and family. Like, I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't want to listen to Del Bigtree. He's an anti-vaxxer. All those things that we run into. We have two scientists, a video made by two scientists, that are having perhaps the most important conversation of our lifetime. If this man is not heard, our species may be in grave danger. That's right. I'm going to go on record here. Go ahead and play it back to me in five to ten years and say Dell was overreacting, just like Geert, who was running, you know, most of the vaccine programs that made sense or, or, or I mean, that were involved in, in what we were doing in this world. He is coming forward. He has put it all in line. He says, I know they're going to call him. They're going to call him an anti-vaxxer, folks. We have got to get this video out to everyone we know before the Wikipedia comes out and says that this guy is an anti-vaxxer, despite the fact he's been working for Bill Gates and everything else. You've got to get this video out. And I'm saying, don't share the high wire this time. I want you to share his video. Don't put the high wire, don't put us around it to all of your friends. They can't hear it from an anti-vaxxer. Let them hear it from a world-renowned vaccine developer there we created a little bitly for you. you can click on take that link and share it everywhere or if you just want to go to youtube it's mass vaccination in the pandemic benefits versus risk please share this video everywhere you can with every human you know think about it your pro-vaccine friends cannot argue with this video they cannot say oh this is bobby kennedy or this is sherry tenbenny this is one of their best and brightest that is warning the world. If we do not share this video, then we are complicit. Then we will be complicit in what could lead to one of the most catastrophic mistakes ever made with this planet and with our species. 
This clip is presented by the people's lawyer, David Adelman. And he's talking about combating global tyranny and the psychological aspects of gaslighting that have been used against the public at large. I found it to be fascinating. I hope that you will too. Welcome to the People's Lawyer YouTube channel and on whatever platform you're watching this. Tonight's episode or today's episode is uh, Combating Global Tyranny and today's part one in which we're looking at what the problem is. What actually is going on? What is all this chaos all about? Well, to understand what the chaos is all about, you have to understand narcissism and narcissistic abuse. And I'm going to list 15 aspects of narcissistic abuse, and let's see how we can relate them to everyday life that's going on all around us now. So the first aspect is the narcissist stops you seeing friends and family. The second aspect is uh, the narcissist doesn't allow you to question him or her or it. Third one, it monitors everything you do. Fourth one, it tells you what to wear. Fifthly, it tells you that you are crazy and that no one agrees with you. Next, it controls the finances or won't let you work. Number seven, it won't let you out without permission. It monitors your phone calls or emails. It tells you it's for your own good and that they know better. It calls you names or shames you for being stupid or selfish. It dismisses your opinions. It punishes you for breaking the rules, but keeps changing the rules. It gaslights you, challenges your memory of, uh, of events and makes you doubt yourself. It controls what you read, watch, and say. And finally, it plays the victim if all goes wrong. It's always your fault. So, if you add all that up together, you'll see, you, you just have to look around you and you can see that um, something in the system, and maybe arguably the system itself, but certainly something that's controlling the system, is, um, is suffering from a heavy dose of narcissism. Uh, now, it's suffering from narcissism, but we're the ones that are being played like narcissistic uh, abuse victims. Uh, and you can, if you join the dots, you can see that this is a, a form of psychological torture that is being played out by government against its own people. Now, we can argue until the cows come home, we can do conspiracy theory that, and we can do conspiracy theory this. It doesn't matter about theories. The fact is that people are suicidal, despondent, depressed, lonely, isolated, uh, suffering all kinds of um, physical illnesses, which are being put down to a physical virus, but in fact are more due to um, the effects of this psychological warfare. Now, once we're aware of this, that puts us in a much stronger position to start to shake off the effects of this warfare and to uh, turn things around. In the next episode, we're going to look, we're going to suggest ways that we can turn all this around. We've already done half the job. We've um, basically made ourselves aware of what the problem is and that it's not a physical problem. It's a psychological problem. 
So thank you for watching. This was brief. It was, it was designed to be brief because we don't want to dwell on the problem. We want, we want to dwell, if anything, on the solutions. So keep watching. Uh, stay tuned for episode two and all the other episodes. Uh, know your rights, combating medical tyranny, keeping your business open. But stay tuned for episode two of um, combating the global tyranny. And also watch out for the People's Lawyer channel um, on YouTube, BitChute, Telegram. Please subscribe to the uh, website, um, thepeopleslawyeruk.com, going live soon. And um, subscribe to the channels and like, uh, which you're doing in fantastic numbers. We appreciate all your support, and we'll see you soon. Thank you very much. This next clip that we have is by Dr. Steve Holtzies. He's a doctor from Texas, and he's talking about the mRNA, quote, vaccine that is not a vaccine. He talks about how it is actually an experimental gene therapy and the implications of that. It is a very interesting talk, and I hope that you enjoy it very much. Hello, I'm Dr. Steve Hotze, founder and CEO of the Hotze Health and Wellness Center in Houston, Texas. The so-called COVID-19 vaccine is not a vaccine at all. It's a dangerous experimental gene therapy. The Center for Disease Control, the CDC, gives the definition of the term vaccine on its website. A vaccine is a product that stimulates a person's immune system to produce immunity to a specific disease. Immunity is the protection from an infectious disease. If you are immune to a disease, you can be exposed to it without becoming infected. This so-called COVID-19 vaccine does not provide any individual who receives the vaccine with immunity to COVID-19, nor does it prevent the spread of the disease. It does not meet the CDC's own definition of a vaccine. That's why it's a deceptive trade practice under 15 U.S. Code Section 41 of the Federal Trade Commission. For pharmaceutical companies who are producing this experimental gene therapy to claim that it's a vaccine, these pharmaceutical companies are lying to the public. The government health bureaucrats are also lying to the public by calling this treatment a vaccine. This COVID-19 experimental gene therapy is only designed to minimize your symptoms if you were to be infected with the COVID-19 virus. Let me reemphasize that this COVID-19 experimental gene therapy does not meet the CDC's own definition of what a vaccine is. It does not provide immunity or prevent the spread of the disease. By referring to this therapy as a vaccine, the pharmaceutical companies are attempting to shield themselves because vaccine injuries or deaths are exempted by law from any product liability lawsuits. The United States health bureaucrats initiated Operation Warp Speed to fast track the so-called COVID-19 vaccine. 
On December 11, 2020, the FDA approved the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna's vaccine was approved just a week later. Now, these so-called vaccines were approved without any published animal studies and without any long-term human studies. This means that individuals who get these so-called experimental gene therapy vaccine treatments are the guinea pigs. That's right. Humans will be the guinea pigs. These so-called vaccines, which are manufactured using cells derived from human babies that were aborted in the 1970s, should more accurately be called experimental gene therapy. They are untested, unproven experimental gene therapy that poses a much greater danger and risk to your health than the COVID-19. Moderna is a company, pharmaceutical company, a biotech company located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was founded in 2010 as Mode RNA Therapeutics. That's where they got the word Moderna. It has been developing experimental gene therapy using synthetic mRNA for the treatment of various diseases, including the COVID-19. Now, this is really important to note. Over the last 10 years, Moderna has never successfully developed any product for treatment of any disease prior to this. An experimental gene therapy using synthetic mRNA to treat an infectious disease has never been attempted in humans. Why? Because of its failure in previous animal studies. The theory behind conventional vaccines is to inject a small amount of the infecting virus or the bacterial protein into your body, which in turn will cause your immune system to produce antibodies to that infecting organism and provide you with immunity. The new COVID-19 so-called vaccine is not a vaccine at all. It's a synthetic messenger ribonucleic acid called mRNA. It's experimental gene therapy, and it works much differently than historic vaccines. The theory behind this is that when this synthetic mRNA is injected into your body, that it inserts itself into your cells. And now it begins to produce the coronavirus spike proteins. That's right. Your own cells now will have this synthetic mRNA that you didn't even make from your DNA that's been imposed, impressed into your cells. It's now going to make the spike protein of the coronavirus. Why would you want to do that? If you're perfectly healthy, why would you want to inject a foreign mRNA into your body? Well, you're... Uh, what is expected to have happen is that, well, your body will start producing antibodies to this coronavirus protein made by your own cells. There's no way to know how long your cells will produce these viral proteins or if they'll ever stop producing them. Your immune system will be hypercharged because it's, it's having to fight off all these viral proteins that your own body's making all the time. And it will overreact when exposed to any type of coronavirus in the future. This is what happened when mRNA experimental gene therapy was used in testing other types of coronaviruses in animals 
back in 2005 and again in 2012. The animals died from an immune system hyperreaction when they were later exposed to the coronavirus against which they had been previously vaccinated. This hyperreaction is called an antibody enhancement reaction. Because these are the first mRNA vaccines ever used in humans, you would think that they would have first been tested and proven safe in published animal studies and have at least two years of human testing, which are routinely required for a vaccine. Instead, the COVID mRNA so-called vaccine was only tested on humans for a couple of months. Wouldn't it have been prudent to have a long-term human study before recommending mass vaccination of the entire population? Adverse effects are inevitable. In the first month of use, there were more than 40,000 documented adverse reactions in the United States, including thousands of cases of anaphylactic shock and serious neurological problems. Because less than 10% of adverse effects are routinely reported to the vaccination board, hundreds of thousands of incidences and damages from the, pro, uh, from the uh, injection have likely occurred. Only in the first 30 days, as of February 14th, there were also 934 deaths of individuals who had received this experimental gene therapy so-called vaccine, including baseball great Hank Aaron. I know several individuals that took this vaccine, unbeknownst to me, that have died within two days. That's no coincidence. Even more worrisome are delayed and long-term adverse effects of this, of this experimental gene therapy. The synthetic mRNA experimental gene therapy turns on the production of COVID-19 proteins, but it has no off switch. It just keeps on replicating, and the immune system keeps on mounting an immune response against it. That is why some researchers are concerned that it's going to provoke autoimmune reactions, setting you up for a lifetime of serious inflammatory disease. Another major concern is the possibility that COVID-19 experimental gene therapy can make infections even worse. There's a convincing argument that this experimental gene therapy may trigger an antibody-dependent enhancement reaction that increases the virus's ability to infect your cells. In other words, if you come down with a coronavirus infection in the future after receiving your experimental gene therapy injections, then you may have a much worse case than if you'd never had this therapy in the first place. That's when the treatment is worse than the disease. And that's what it looks like this experimental gene therapy is. Many experts are predicting a surge of life-threatening infections, inflammatory disorders, and deaths coming in months and years for those who have received this treatment. Of course, the blame will be placed on a, a mutant virulent strain of COVID-19 virus rather than on poorly tested experimental gene therapy. And then they'll want to do mandatory vaccinations of everybody. Even if it were acknowledged, the U.S. government, which has spent 
over $12 billion on COVID-19 vaccines so far, would foot the bill for any damages incurred by those who received the treatment. As I previously mentioned, by law, pharmaceutical companies cannot be sued for any injury caused by any vaccine. So by lying and calling this experimental gene therapy a vaccine, they are reaping enormous profits with no down risk of product liability. Not only is the media downplaying the COVID-19 gene therapy side effects, but they seem content to simply repeat the drug makers' overly optimistic claims of efficacy. You've probably heard that both Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are 95% effective. This is a false claim. It's a lie. Yet the medical establishment and the government bureaucrats have simply taken these pharmaceutical companies' word for it and are encouraging everyone to line up for this experimental gene therapy so-called vaccine. At the time the Pfizer and Moderna products were approved, these pharmaceutical companies had failed to release most of the raw data from their experimental trials. In fact, they are still withholding much of it. However, now that more of it is available for review, a different picture has emerged. In the British Medical Journal, Associate Editor Dr. Peter Doshi had the opportunity to review the available data. And he pointed out the inconsistencies and the weaknesses of the pre-approval trials. He concluded that rather than the widely publicized 95% effective rate, these so-called vaccines are at best only 19, that's one nine, 19% effective. At this low rate, they would have never been approved. There are still many unknowns about this experimental gene therapy. There is no indication that it saves any lives or prevents the spreading of the infection or you're contracting the infection, which is why health bureaucrats continue to recommend masking and social distancing even after you've received these injections. Nobody has any idea about the long-term adverse effects of this experimental gene therapy, yet they are still plowing ahead with plans to inject this experimental gene therapy into the entire population. This experimental gene therapy will not eradicate the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 any more than the flu vaccine has eliminated the flu. COVID-19 is here to stay, even without this so-called vaccine. Infections will slow as more people develop natural herd immunity. Why in the world would you risk all the known and unknown short-term and long-term side effects of an experimental gene therapy that was inadequately tested, rushed through the approval process at warp speed, and found to be much less effective, yet more dangerous than initially promised, and more dangerous than the COVID infection itself? I'm advising my family, my friends, and my guests here at the Hotsey Health and Wellness Center to just say no. No, I am not going to take this experimental gene therapy vaccine. COVID-19 infections 
pose uh, no significant health risk except to those that are infirm and elderly and those with severe pre-existing conditions, not unlike the flu or any other respiratory infection. Most individuals who contract COVID-19 have mild or moderate symptoms for a few days, similar to the flu, and the overall survival rate of those who are infected is 99.98%. It's very seldomly lethal, except in those that are infirm and elderly and have pre-existing health conditions. It has been demonstrated in studies around the world that the use of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine can safely prevent and treat the COVID-19 infection. Of course, it's important for you to strengthen your immune system with vitamin and mineral supplementation, healthy eating, natural hormone replenishment, treatment of allergies, exercise, and a good night's sleep and maintaining your ideal body weight. Aside from that, let's allow the, this virus to just run its course in society so that we can develop herd immunity, which is far safer and much more effective than this experimental gene therapy could ever be. The panic and mass hysteria created by government health bureaucrats, by the media and politicians is all about control, power, and money. I've written extensively about the ineffectiveness and dangers of wearing masks, of social distancing, of closing businesses, and lockdowns. We need to get back to work, back to school, and back to church. I'm Dr. Steve Hotze, and I thank you for joining me, and I want to encourage you to pass this video on to your family members, friends, and associates, and your entire list of people with whom you're in contact to warn them about the dangers of this ex experimental gene therapy program that's being foisted upon the public. You can also send them a copy of my document that I've written about this particular experimental gene therapy. And I want to encourage you to just say no. Thanks so much for uh, allowing me to join you today. And I wish you every success uh, in your health life and in your personal life. This is Dr. Hotsey saying thank you. This is Dr. Bruce Lipton and Sarah Swati. They're talking about the impact of consciousness on reality. Again, another very interesting insight and interview, different perspective, but very, very important, especially in these times where there's a lot of instability and what can you do to create that stability in your life and change your reality and something that you'd like to live. Fascinating interview. In my particular situation, there are very many parallels exactly to what Sadhviji was, was saying. I was a scientist, and as a scientist, we don't bring spirituality and mind into the story. It's all genes and cells and molecules and all that. And my research uh, on, on stem cells uh, revealed that while I was teaching in medical school that genes control life, my research revealed that it was the environment in which the cells lived that controlled the cells. It was outside information coming into the cells. And I remember how specifically in a moment of time, 
that I was working on trying to understand the mechanics from a molecular point of view. How does an environmental signal control biology? And I was working not on the genes. I was working on the skin of the cell, the membrane. And it was, it was so profound. I, I, it's hard for me to even describe it. I'm working on the understanding how does information from the environment control biology. And I had looked at the membrane for years, and I wrote a new definition of the mechanism of the membrane. And I wrote this definition, and this is in 1985. It was about 2 a.m., and I wrote down the membrane is a liquid crystal semiconductor with gates and channels. When I wrote that down, there was a pause, and I said, I, I, I just, I, I read something exactly like that. And right next to my first computer, Macintosh, was a book from a simple book of understanding your microprocessor. Uh, and I opened it up and I said, somewhere, and I opened it right in the introduction. It said, a chip is a crystal semiconductor with gates and channels. And I thought, oh, what a coincidence. They have the same definition. And then in a couple of seconds, I started to say, wait a minute. One for one, the parts are exactly the same. I said, oh, oh my God. The membrane is a computer chip, and on the surface of the cell are like keys, like on a typewriter. Uh, and, and I started to realize, oh my goodness, the environment is typing on the surface of the cell information that went into the cell and controlled the genetics and the behavior. And it was like, oh, oh, this is really exciting, and I'm typing on my own computer, typing this information in, and then I realized, I am outside of the computer, typing on the keyboard, and the information is coming up on the computer. And then I said, oh, my God. The keyboard on the surface of your cells has a number of keys that represent a PIN number, a personal identification number. And no two of you have the same keys on that. Each of us have a different PIN number to get into our own cells. It's our personal identity. And these are the keys. And I realized, oh my God, while we've been focusing on these what are called receptors as the source of identity, I realized, no, it's what's activating, what's typing is the identity. And then it hit me and said, oh my God, my identity is not in the cell. My identity is a signal coming from the environment, typing on the keyboard. And then I said, oh. And the first thing that hit me was, I can't die. I'm not even in here. And that instant of fear, which all of us have in our deepest bottom belief system, is a fear of our mortality. And when that moment of like, I can't die, not as a devotional belief, it had nothing to do with that. It was just a mechanism. I said, oh my God, I can't die. I tell you, the same thing happened with Savage as me. Tears started rolling down my face. And this joy was an ache in my heart that I've never experienced before. I spent 40 years in my head. That's how I became an academician and a research scientist. And when this moment hit, it was my heart that blew open. I refer to it as a heart orgasm. And, 
And that was the first time I experienced my heart as, a, as an essential part of my own conscious existence. And what happened was I was overwhelmed, first with the fact that I was not spiritual at 1.59 a.m., and at 2 a.m., I was 100% spiritual with, with no devotional interface in between. <laughs> and, and, then, and then I have to add this because this becomes the next important step. Yes, I saw this. I understood it. It was beautiful. It was in my conscious awareness, my knowledge, my learning. And I got so excited. I wanted to tell people. And I couldn't wait to get some people together. And I bring them into the room and I say, let me explain this mechanism. Because if you understand this mechanism, you'll understand you are the most powerful creator that exists. And I couldn't wait to tell them. And I get up there and I tell them. And then the audience will look at me and go, you know, Lipton, your life doesn't look that good if you really think that's true because your life doesn't represent anything you just said. And there was a pause and I started to realize it's like, and I almost said this, so I want to thank the universe for not making me so foolish. I almost said, well, do as I say and not as I do. It was then the most important lesson, number two, and that was this. I don't care how much knowledge is in your head. If that knowledge doesn't go into your subconscious, your life will stay exactly the same as it was. You can be the brightest, smartest academic. And I say, fine, did it change your life? And the answer is no. You have to take the knowledge that you are walking within your conscious mind and put that knowledge into your subconscious programming. And when you do that, you are all powerful in the creation of your own life. And so just walking around and being able to recite all these wonderful sayings and things that you hear from all the wonderful teachers that we have, and you say, oh, yes, I remember that. That's a good quote. That's a nice quote. Oh, that's a wonderful saying. It's irrelevant until that saying becomes part of your program because now you are living from the saying and not talking about the saying. And that was the total transformation of a, a life that on an academic level was successful on a personal level. <laughs> I don't even want to talk about that, uh, but it changed everything. Why? Because instead of having to chase after life, after this understanding, things came to me. The light will bring it to you. The only thing that's in your way of the light is a block in your belief that other people have put into your programming. You take your knowledge that you have, make it your subconscious program, and you will manifest all of the wonderful spiritual wisdom that you have heard throughout your whole life. It's not words now. It is life and behavior, and that's our destination. Thank you. So I want to go back to the programming conversation again because... We've been talking about this individual, you know, understanding your individual programming. But what about, um, I'd love to just share, have you share about the collective programming. The collective programming, we're, we're all one. We know, we, we, know, you know we've, we know this concept of being all one. And then there's this, there is this great collective programming that is basically creating this sort of, you know, which we could call destructive paradigm. So... How, how do you see that changing? So it's a huge question, but just to address 
one aspect of it for now. What I would say is our collective programming comes, of course, from the culture, from societies, because now we're not talking about our individual parents, our individual fifth grade teacher who told us we were worthless and stupid, but the society, the culture. And what's happening today, which is so, so tragic, and yet the moment we're aware of it, we actually have the ability to change it. In fact, the awareness changes it automatically, is a, a myth of scarcity, a myth of less than wholeness. And here's what it looks like. So every day we watch TV, we go online where we see advertisements, we read magazines, we see billboards, whatever it is, we are inundated with thousands and thousands and thousands. I don't know the statistics, but I'm sure it's enormous. Numbers of different advertisements every day, whether on our phones, on our computer screens, on our billboards, on TV commercials. Now, those advertisements, this is just marketing. It's fully legal. There's nothing really, really super insidious about it. Companies are just trying to sell you something whether they're trying to sell you a pair of jeans or dishwashing soap or a mobile phone, the only way for them to sell you something is to first convince you that there is a lack in your life that their product will sell. Basic psychology of marketing. I cannot sell you something if you are already living in a state of awareness of your fullness and your wholeness and your completion. Because then you know, well, I don't need that brand of jeans or these shoes or that type of mobile or to switch to that type of soap in order to live a life that looks as good as the people in the commercial. So first we have to convince you that there's something lacking. And if you look for a moment just at how this works, let's say that I'm trying to sell soap. So what soap really does is cleans us. It's a perfect necessity, no problem with soap. But if I were trying to sell soap honestly, we would talk about which brand of soap cleans how many parts per million of bacteria compared to a different brand or how quickly it washes off your skin. But that's not what commercials for soap look like. They look like beautiful people who are lathering up while they're singing in the shower in the morning and then their beautiful spouses come into the bathroom also singing and then, then they walk out. And their beautiful child has gotten out of bed and dressed himself and done his homework and had his breakfast. And now this beautiful family walks out of the house together, hand in hand. And you just see a little thing that says, dove or zest. Now, we're not talking cleanliness. We're selling happy families. And what the subconscious programming message is 
If you don't feel like singing in the shower in the morning, if your spouse doesn't come in singing in the shower or you don't have a spouse, or you've got to drag your kid out of bed in the morning and force him to take a shower and force him to do his homework, or you don't have a kid, well, the problem is you're using the wrong brand of soap. And again, from a marketing perspective, this is legal. There's nothing super, super wrong. This is why marketers spend billions of dollars on ad campaigns. But now look at what's happening to our subconscious. Thousands of times every day, different companies are first convincing me that there is something lacking in my life. Now, I can't buy everything. I can't switch brands of soap for every commercial I see. I can't take every vacation to every resort, drive every model car, which means that even if I do what I'm supposed to do in the advertisement, can't do all of it. So I'm left with a pervasive subconscious experience of there being something lacking in my life, that if I just had the money or the time to actually buy it all, I could solve all those problems. And this, I think, is one of the most tragic, damaging, and insidious aspects of cultural brainwashing that is going on today. It's being used, of course, by politicians as well. Every problem you're facing, if you vote for me, I'll solve it. So wherever we turn, what we're being inundated with is the message that something is wrong in your life. Something is lacking. Ah, you may think you're happy. But let me show you what's lacking. And I've paid someone billions of dollars to put together this ad campaign because I've got to sell you my product. So you can be pretty sure that it's going to be effective and it's going to work. So now we're moving through the world with this sense of something lacking. And at some point in a spiritual practice, in a yoga practice, whatever it is, we realize, oh, my God. I cannot keep changing brands of soap. I cannot keep buying things to bring happiness. So we stop doing that. But we're still left with that subconscious programming that says there's something wrong. And along with that goes the other campaign, which is you're running out of time. 24 hours left of this sale. There's only two tickets left. How many of you have gone online to buy something that you're just contemplating maybe buying, and you see it says one left at this price, two left at this price, 85 other people are looking at this website right now planning to buy this thing you're looking at. So what we have been programmed into culturally today is you're not enough. There is something wrong. It comes from outside of you, and you're running out of time to get it. And this, I think, is really the most problematic and dis-ease-causing 
programming that we're all facing today. And really the only way to come out of it is consciousness. It's to be aware, wait, I am whole, I am complete. These people are just doing what they were hired to do. They're trying to sell soap, fine, let them do their thing. But I don't have to give them my subconscious. I don't have to give them my heart. I don't have to feel badly about myself just because Zest is trying to sell Zest and Dove is trying to sell Dove. There's nothing wrong with my family. But we have to be absolutely and acutely aware and conscious every moment. Again, Sadhguru brought up the very important fact that people play on our fears, people play on our concerns. And why I want to bring a little extension to exactly what she said is that, well, in our mind, we start to realize that we're concerned, we're afraid, we don't have enough, I'm not safe, I'm not secure. And I say, oh, these thoughts, I was talking about the thoughts in your mind, go in and control your biology, your genetics, your physiology, and your health. And I go, yes, this is really true. I say, well, how can I tell you what your thoughts are in a sense that can I read your thoughts? And I say, yes, you know, I could put wires on your head, and it's called electroencephalograph, and I could read your brain activity. And I go, oh, great, I can see this brain activity. I want to tell you something that's profoundly important. We were programmed to believe that our thoughts are contained in our head. That if I have a thought, it's just for me, not for anybody else. It's inside and it's working through me. And now I want to tell you about a new technology. It's not electroencephalograph. It's called magnetoencephalograph. I say, what's unique about that? I say, it reads your brain. I say, yeah, but so does EEG. I say, yeah, but EEG, you put the wires on the head, and you get the electrical activity conducted through the skin from the brain, and that's what I'm reading. And I say, what's different about MEG? The probe is out here. And I say, what does that mean? Your thoughts are not contained in your head. Your thoughts are broadcast to the field just like a radio broadcast. I say, well... What if I, as an individual, have a thought that says, let's have peace in the world. And I broadcast out there in the street and I say, let's have peace. And I look around, it's like, where's the peace? I, I don't see the peace. And here's what the relevance is. Each of us is broadcasting. If you get enough people to have the same thought, that broadcast is amplified. Each of us has a small power, but if you put 1,000 people with the same thought, 10,000, 100,000 people with the same thought, you are broadcasting a most powerful thought, not just in your body, but out in the field. I say, your energy is in the field. The thought is in the field. And you go, well, what does that mean? And then I'll give you this most wonderful quote. I used it the other day in a lecture from Albert Einstein. And the quote is so important. Here's the quote. The field, so a definite, a definition, the field is the invisible energy. Right now you're in a field, there's cell phone broadcasts, televo television, radio broadcasts, all kinds of information coming across. But guess what? Each one of you is a broadcast in that field. The quote, the field is the sole governing agency of the particle. Particle is the material realm. 
So what was Einstein saying? It's the energy in the field that shapes the physical experience of our lives. And if enough of us collectively have an energy that's coherent and strong and we broadcast the belief, we change the world. I just want you to recognize as much as I wanted peace in the world, if not enough people are out there saying, let's have peace in the world, there is no peace. If I want to say, let's have a war, how can you have a war? You have to have enough people convinced that the war is going to benefit them so that their broadcast say, yes, let's have a war because I and my colleagues, we're all going to have a better result from that. And the reality is this. The only things that change on this planet collectively are when we collectively share thoughts. And yoga, when you're in your postures, when you're in your process, your mind is sharing a thought, not just in your head, but all around you. So the whole idea about this is we have to recognize we are collectively creating reality with our thoughts. And if we want to change reality, it can change instantly. The moment we become coherent, the moment we collectively are on the same platform of thinking, you get enough people to say peace, there will be peace instantly in this world. But we've been programmed by other people to give them the power to tell us what we need. And as Sadhviji has been telling us so importantly, what we need is not what they tell us, what we need is what we know. And I really hope that you understand this because when you have your thoughts, recognize it's not contained in your head, your thoughts out in the field. And that thought, the field, is the sole governing agency of matter. And therefore, what this world is looking for at this moment is an evolution. It's not an evolution of our biology. Our biology has already evolved. It's an evolution of our consciousness. When we collectively as a population say enough is enough, it will end. And when we say to our mother Ganga and we say to the nature that we're living in, we're sorry, we have been destroying you, but now we are here to help. This planet will be restored in what is called a spontaneous remission. A spontaneous remission, a person could be dying of cancer and everybody's looking around and all of a sudden the patient changes their belief and says, I'm not doing this. I'm doing something different. And guess what? How fast does it take that thought to change your cancer into peace again? It's called spontaneous remission. It will spontaneously change the planet. We are experiencing the groundswell of an evolution. And every one of you is a most important contributor to that evolution. Because when you recognize your thoughts are creating this, and we collectively agree that this is not what we want, what we want is a garden that we were given, the garden will instantly, spontaneously reappear. So our evolution it's not waiting for something to happen. Our evolution is each one of us is a participant. It's not sit in your seat and wait for the evolution, look out your window. No, we are making evolution. So look at yourself as a powerful force, an energy, a belief, and a thought that will create the world 
that we collectively want, not a world that has been programmed by a small number of people and then programmed us with their belief. I trust you more than any government. I trust you more than any corporation because all of us really want the same thing. Peace, love, harmony, joy. And if we all broadcast that thought, the universe will express it and we will return to the garden. So I really want to thank you because when you understand this, you'll start to recognize we don't have to be victims. We just need to change our thoughts. Thank you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.